Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 32. If you didn't have a Bible with you, didn't bring one with you, you'll probably find one in the pew in front of you, and you can pull that out and look for Luke chapter 5. If I were to ask you, what is the deepest canyon in North America, what would you say? Of course, everybody knows it's the Grand Canyon, right? They're wrong. <laughs> it's Hell's Canyon in the Hell's Canyon wilderness of Idaho, <laughs> which in some places is 8,000 feet from the rim to the bottom of the canyon where the Snake River is. And if you float the canyon, which I have done on several occasions, there is a incredible just rock just jetting up uh, for a long ways. And uh, some places you just feel like you're just a speck of dust on a little trickle of water. It's just you're just surrounded by this incredible canyon and uh, the mountain range, which is called the Seven Devils Mountain Range. At the rim of the canyon, uh, it's often very cold because of the elevation. Uh, it can be uh, freezing up on the rim and yet 110 degrees down below. Because uh, the lower you get, the hotter it gets. And let's just say that you were there near the rim of the canyon. A guide is taking you along and there's people in your group and he's explaining the geology of the area and you're taking in all the scenery there's one person in your group though that seems a little bit confused a little bit disoriented um, preoccupied and you can tell the guide is concerned because this person seems to be wandering a little too close to the edge and in fact, at one point, uh, while the guide is explaining how the canyon was formed because of the receding waters of the Noatian flood, you call out and say, hey, be careful. And the guide yells out and says, hey, you're putting your life in danger. Quit walking towards the edge. Stop. Turn around and come back. But the person only hesitates for a moment and says, I know it's dangerous. I agree with you. I am sorry I scared you. Please forgive me. I agree with what you're saying. And they keep walking and they fall off the edge. And you hear them scream. And pretty soon their screaming fades away and they have vanished from all sight and sound. Well, this is the plight of humanity. Blinded from the truth, darkened in their understanding, futile in their speculations, Deceived, deluded, held captive by Satan to do his will. He first uses unbelievers to do those things God hates and then leads them off the rim of Hell's Canyon. There are even many in the church who fit this description. They know who Jesus is. They know what Jesus did. They say they believe in Jesus's existence. They believe in the danger of hell, but they never stop walking towards hell's canyon. 
They won't stop. They won't turn around and they won't follow Jesus. If you were to ask them if Jesus is God, if he was born of a virgin, if he was perfect, if he was sinless, if he suffered on the cross to pay the penalty of sin, died, buried, and rose again in the third day, conquering death, they would readily agree and in many cases defend these truths as right and orthodox. Yet they are still walking towards Hell's Canyon, and unless they stop and turn around and walk towards Christ, they will perish. These educated people, these religious people, these people who go to church. Jesus described them as the many who take the broad way to destruction. He said the way is narrow that leads to eternal life and few are those who find it. He said strive to enter the narrow gate for many will try and will not be able. They think they can get to heaven by taking a different way by jumping off into hell's canyon by not stopping and turning their life around. But they are wrong. And this is the sad state of the world today. It's the sad state of much of the church today. And it was the sad state of many of the Jews in Jesus's day. There were many religious Jews who knew the traditions of the Jews, who knew the Ten Commandments, who knew the stories of God's faithfulness to Israel, but they were walking towards Hell's Canyon. This morning, we are going to meet one such individual in our text. He is a Jew. He is part of the chosen nation of Israel. He is a son of Abraham. He is among the people who received the law and the promises of God ordained by angels. But he is walking towards Hell's Canyon. And his name is Levi, or as most of us know him, Matthew. As we have been working our way through Luke, we have seen John the Baptist come onto the scene and his primary message was repent and believe. And now we're getting into Jesus's ministry and we discover that his message is repent and believe. And this morning, as we come to the calling of Levi, we will find out that Jesus's call is a call to repent and believe. Jesus has already called the fishermen, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, and our text, he calls Matthew this morning. Matthew, like many religious people in the church today, was headed for hell. And from our text, we're going to see from Luke's words that anyone who wishes to escape the fires of hell must repent. Turn around. And follow Jesus. And he gives you three practical truths to understand and submit to. So follow along as I read, starting in Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat? And drink with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus answered 
and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The first thing we learn is this. You need to understand what repentance is. We find this in verses 27 and 28. The text begins after that. After what? Well, Mark tells us very clearly that Jesus um, lived in Capernaum. Capernaum was his hometown. So we know that Jesus is in Capernaum. And Luke went to describe, as we saw last week, how he healed this paralytic. And it's probably the next day the crowds have somewhat dispersed and Jesus decides to go for a walk by the sea since Capernaum is built right on the sea and he's walking along the Sea of Galilee, which is nothing more than a large lake. And as he's walking along after that, after this episode of healing the paralytic, the text continues, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in a tax booth. The text says he noticed him or he saw him, which tells us he didn't know him before. This is his first encounter with Matthew and Matthew's first encounter with Christ. Surely Matthew probably heard about Jesus because of all the uproar in Capernaum and the whole country because of what Jesus was teaching and what he was doing. But this is their first encounter with one another. Yet in order to understand the text clearly, you really need to understand about tax collectors. According to Vincent's word studies in the New Testament, the Romans appointed rulers of large areas or provinces to collect taxes. And those those rulers had to make sure the taxes were being brought into the Roman treasury. They, in turn, appointed under them sub-magistrates who appointed under them toll collectors in different areas. And apparently, Matthew was had this great job by the Sea of Galilee. He got to tax all the fishermen and all the boats who would come in with their merchandise and would come into port there at Capernaum. And that's where he was set up. Vincent says, quote, they were often chosen, these tax collectors, from the dregs of the people. They were so notorious for their extortions that they were habitually included in the same category with harlots and sinners. Example, Luke 3.11. For instance, if you go through the Gospels, you will find out, for instance, when Jesus was verbally attacked in Matthew 11.19 by the Pharisees, this is what they said to him. Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was the nastiest thing they could think to say to him. This is the meanest thing. You friend of tax collectors. That was bad. That was that was bad. That was, you know, the worst thing they could conjure up. You are a friend of tax collectors. And people who would be listening would go, oh, my goodness. What a mean thing to say. Is it true? Surely he's not one of those. You see, the tax collectors were so mean. They were so hated. They were just referred to as dogs. Because they were Jews who had no morals, no scruples, and would buy a franchise from Rome so that they could collect 
taxes. And then they would go around and they would collect more taxes than was required. And they would steal from the people, from their own people. They would grow rich. And people hated them. Even the Gentiles hated them. They were the lowest of the low. And that is why when you do a survey of the word tax collector in the Gospels, it's all, all often used in conjunction with drunkards, prostitutes, and sinners. They were cannibalistic leeches sucking money from their own people. And since they worked with Gentiles, they were considered by the Jews to be ceremonially unclean. So you, if you were a pious Jew, you couldn't even get near one. They had cooties, social cooties. Also, you might think, well, why did people, you know, even pay taxes, these people, because they hired thugs to come over to you, you know, Guido and Bob and big swords, big muscles. It's time to pay taxes. Okay. And so whenever you got a visit from one of these guys, it was just bad news. And so people hated them. You would never go near one. They might tax you on the spot. You know, and they didn't have to give justification. Hey, how much money do you have on you? Well, I, you know, have a buck 25. Give me a buck. Well, hey, I'll say it. Those guys with the sword step forward. Okay. They were just stealing from the people. They were thieves. Basically, being a tax collector was licensed to be a thief. And notice what Jesus says to Levi at the end of verse 27. He says to him, follow me. Now, in the English, it just doesn't do this justice. In the English, it just looks like Jesus is saying, hey, take a walk with me along the beach. That's not what's happening. Jesus is telling him to repent to turn from his wicked way, to turn from his unrighteous lifestyle, to forget being a tax collector and the lucrative business of stealing from his own people and to once and for all turn his back on that lifestyle and follow him. And you might be thinking to yourself, why would Jesus do this? This guy was the plague. And if Jesus was found walking with this guy, everybody in that area already hated this guy. And if Jesus became his friend, he'd be bad on the movement. You know, it would be bad evangelism. I mean, if you're going to, you know, evangelize the world, why this guy? He is the dregs of the earth. You know, we don't know. It's very likely that Matthew heard about Jesus and it, because the whole town was overrun by people coming to be healed and to hear him teach. We don't know what was going on in Matthew's heart before Jesus showed up. But what we do know is this. He was not a faithful Jew. He was not a righteous man. He was not obeying the law of Moses. Matthew was not just sinning. He was sinning in public for all to see and he didn't care. He was one of these people who just paraded his sin for all to see. And people probably just treated him like he had a force field around him and just stayed a hundred paces away. 
He was just one of those kind of guys. He is, and you know, you read the Gospels, and he's only mentioned a few times, he is the most wealthy of all the apostles. He is filthy rich. And yet, Jesus says, follow me, and he turns his back on all of it. That is an incredible sacrifice. Incredible commitment, because I'll tell you what, if Rome found out he turned his back on his post, that'd be it. That'd be it. And what do you do if you've made every single person you know angry with you and you lose your job? You're in a bad spot. See, this was a huge commitment here. Matthew had to turn his back on his livelihood and trust totally in Jesus to provide for him. And even though the text doesn't tell us what was going on in his heart, we know what was going on. People like Matthew are miserable. They're miserable. They may look tough and happy and chipper on the outside, but on the inside, they're dying. Everyone who doesn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is miserable. I don't care what they tell you. They're empty on the inside. They know they're empty on the inside. They have no peace. They stuff themselves with the world, with all of its pleasures, and it leaves them feeling empty and defiled and unsatisfied. And the strange thing is, is they go back for more until eventually their own lusts destroy them, not only in this life, but for all eternity. And they can't stop. Because they were held captive by Satan to do his will. He's got them on the leash and he's just tugging them around towards Hell's Canyon. Look at verse 28. And he left everything, the text says, behind and got up and began to follow him. Began a permanent process of following him. He left everything. Everything. He was walking towards the rim of Hell's Canyon. He stopped. He turned from his wicked way and he followed Jesus. In other words, Matthew was saved. Matthew repented. Matthew started following Christ right here and never stopped. And there were people waiting in line to have his job. I mean, they wanted it. There were other scoundrels and scum who were just looking to have that job. But why would he do that? Why would he just, you know, some stranger comes along? It says, follow me, dump it all and follow me. Okay, what is that? Uh, Who does that? Every single person Jesus calls and gives the grace to follow him. (laughs) There are tons of people here who left all sorts of things to follow Christ. And we're sitting in a room full of them. People look at you and they look at your life and they think, you know, what happened? It's really strange how it's not strange. It's just amazing. I think it'd probably be the better word. How when God decides to save somebody, it, there's nothing you can, you can't stop it. That you just do. You just come when he says, come, you obey the call. You turn your back, you whatever. He just brings you to the end of you and just opens your eyes up to the truth that, hey, this is <laughs> I'm going in a bad way and I'm turning around. 
And why did he have to turn from all of this? Because you can't follow the world and follow Christ. You can't follow sin and follow Christ. You can't be a tax collector in Capernaum if you're walking around the country preaching the gospel with Jesus. Seems obvious, doesn't it? But amazingly, many churches today are teaching that people don't need to repent in order to be saved. As a matter of fact, they go farther than that. They say, if you say repentance, people have to repent. You are adding works to the gospel of grace and you are preaching a false gospel because you're adding works to salvation because you're telling people they have to do something in order to be saved. Others, a little less extreme, would say, well, it is true that we have to repent. The Bible does say that. But repentance has nothing to do with our lives and how we live. It's nothing more than a mental change of mind. Because the Greek word metanoia is really from two words. Meta to, you know, change and and nuos, which is mind. It's just a change of mind. And this is what you'll hear. The problem is that words don't always derive their meaning from the basic definition of their individual parts. Words derive their meaning from the contexts in which they are found in the text of the Bible. Yet some, in their noble effort to guard the doctrine of salvation by grace, have stuck their heads in the sand like ostriches. And they say, no, 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 no. I'm not going to, don't show me the Bible. I know what the individual parts of the word mean. Listen, there is this word study book. Some of you may have it. It's called Gerhard Kettle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. It is the most extensive word study book ever written. 13 volumes, 700 plus pages per volume. And this is what Gerhard Kettle says this word means, this word repentance. Kettle, speaking about the use of the word in relationship to the prophets, calling sinners to repentance, writes, quote, What is meant is an about face. What is turned from is evil conduct. Previous conduct, violence, idols, or sin. The concept of conversion stresses positively the fact that real penitence involves a new relation to God that embraces all spheres of life and claims the will, end quote. He goes on to describe repentance in the ministry of Jesus, that it is a, quote, a calling, a call to conversion in a final and unconditional decision, in a once for all turning to God in total obedience. This is the point of Jesus's teaching, even when the terms are not used, not merely evil, but anything that might be put before God must be renounced. Conversion applies to all people demanding a complete commitment that seeks forgiveness in full trust and surrender, end quote. And yet there are people today, there are people who write me letters and try to fix me and say, that's not what the word means. Listen, I've got a few lexicons in my office. And so I decided to look in every single one of them. And I discovered that in Bauer, Art, Gingrich, and Dankers, a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature, 
and in Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, and in Freiburg's Analytical Lexicon of the New Testament, and Zodiati's Complete Word Study Dictionary, and Swanson's Dictionary of the Biblical Languages with Semantic Domains, and Newman's The Greek English Dictionary of the New Testament, and Abbott Smith's uh, Manual Greek Lexicon of the New Testament, and Robertson's Word Pictures of the New Testament, they all say the same thing. And so don't tell me that metanoia, that repentance, doesn't involve a changing of your life. Yes, it does. And if you don't, you don't go to heaven. And you can go to most churches today, churches that say they believe the Bible, churches that have great doctrinal statements, and you'll never hear them say, say that from the pulpit, ever. What is going on? I'll tell you what's going on, is people have been duped into preaching a false gospel. And so don't buy into the lie that repentance doesn't have anything to do with the way you live. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. You say, well, show me from the Bible. Okay. Turn to Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah chapter one. Now, I want you to know because of time, we can't look at a whole bunch of verses. So I'm just going to show you just a couple texts, but there's tons of them, tons of them. Spend some time. Look up repentance. Look up turn. Look up return. And see how it's used. Here is Isaiah chapter 1 verse 4. This is the problem. This is the problem that is requiring repentance. Verse 4 of chapter 1. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. Now, notice what they did. They acted corruptly, abandoned the Lord, despised the Holy One, and turned away from him. That's what they did. Now, what is the solution? Look at verse 16. This is what God says they need to do in order to receive forgiveness. They need to do this. Wash yourself, make yourself clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If, if you consent and obey. Then you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You're trying to tell me that repentance has nothing to do with the way we live. That's not what the Bible says. Turn to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. There were so many passages when I was first writing my sermon notes. I had so many down here that my sermon was two hours. So I just did two from Isaiah. If you want the longer version, just... Tell the elders. Um, Isaiah 55. Verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. I'm telling you, you cannot seek God if you're seeking sin because they are in different directions. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. That is the way of his living and the unrighteous man, his thoughts. That is his unrighteous way of thinking and let him return Repent to the Lord. That is, do an about face to the Lord. And he will have compassion on him and to our God for he abundantly pardon. Notice the criteria. First seek, forsake, turn from, 
are returned to, then you get compassion, then you have pardon. That's what the scriptures teach. That's what the scriptures teach. You know, people go, well, you know, that's the Old Testament. But where is that in the New Testament? Well, it's all the way through. It's in our text this morning. Not only that, turn over to Revelation. We'll just kind of look at the end of the New Testament. Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. This is Jesus speaking to the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus. He's talking about what he has against them. Revelation 2, verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Notice they were in a place of obedience and they fell from that place of obedience and they're going away from the Lord. The solution is to repent, turn around and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. That is the message that the church is to teach. That you need to repent. Do you know what the first of Martin Luther's 95 theses are all about? You know, those little propositions he nailed to the Wittenberg door that started the revival? Well, let me tell you. First thesis. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, Matthew 4.17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Their life. Second thesis to correct the corruption of the Catholic Church was repentance cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance. That is confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. No one does this for you, in other words. Third thesis. Yet it does not mean solely inner repentance, change of mind. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortifications of the flesh. Old-fashioned way of saying turning from sin. Luther had it right, but this is exactly where people begin to freak out because they say, hey, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. You are telling me that if I'm going to be saved, I have to do something. You're adding words to salvation. Heretic. And that's what they say. Well, if you were adding words to salvation, you would be a heretic. So the question is. If you have to repent and turn from your sins, how can you repent and turn for your sins if it's a work and you can't do any works to be saved? Isn't that a good question? Let me tell you. Do you have to believe in order to be saved? Yeah, you better and not. It's okay. Is it something that you have to do in order to get to heaven? You have to believe you have to believe well hey you believe in work salvation you have to do it does god believe for you no he commands you to believe well how would you answer somebody that somebody says well you have to believe in order to be saved and you're saying, well, salvation is by grace, but yes, I do have to believe, but salvation is not of works, but I have to believe. And so, see, 
The answer to that question is the same answer to the question. Why repentance is not a matter of works. If you know the gospel, you would answer it like this. Salvation is by God's grace. God's grace is his undeserved, unearned favor. It is his favor or kindness extended towards unworthy sinners by giving them what they need in order to be saved. That's what grace is. It is that free gift of God without which we could not be saved. And if you ever add your works in there, apart from the grace of God, you believe in work salvation and you are a heretic. A good verse on this is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's as good as any. It says, most of us have it memorized, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is not a result of works that no one should boast. You see, if you say, well, yeah, the faith was mine and I believed apart from the grace of God, you believe in works salvation. But if you say, no, 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 that's not how it works. What happens is, is God's grace invades my life. And then I believe in response to the gift of God's grace. Then you have it right. That is how you are able to believe. God, by his grace, draws us to himself. By his grace, illuminates our hearts to the truth. By his grace, opens our heart to understand the gospel. By his grace, gives us faith we need in order to believe. And yes, we believe. You believe. I believe by God's grace. And I'm telling you, if God doesn't give us the grace to believe, no one does. No one does. That if you say, no, I believe apart from the grace of God and I did it on my own works, on my own merit. And then God, in response to me, then gave me grace. You are a heretic. You are teaching work salvation. Now, if repentance is necessary, and we've seen from the Bible it is. And if it means a turning away from our wicked deeds and our unrighteous thoughts, which we've seen that the Bible teaches it is. And if salvation is by grace, and it is, and you can't add works to that, which you can't, otherwise you're teaching heresy, and you are if you do, then the only way that repentance could be a necessary part of the gospel is if repentance was actually something God, by his grace, gives people. So the question is, is that what the Bible teaches? Ah, I'm glad you asked. Turn to Acts 5. Turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts 5 verse 31. Peter is telling the Jews about Jesus. And in Acts 5 31, he says, He is the one... Whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Where does repentance come from? According to this text, God grants it. Turn to Acts chapter 11. 
couple chapters over, Peter returns to Jerusalem to tell others of how the Gentiles were saved and received the Holy Spirit just like the Jews. And in Acts 11, verse 17, this is what we read. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles the also the repentance that leads to life. Where does repentance come from? From God. He grants it to people. Turn over to Romans chapter 2. Romans has something to say about the gospel. Romans 2 verse 4. I'm glad people here. There's a few people here who understand my sense of humor. I just want you to know, I'm thankful that you get that. I've got three in each service. Um, (laughs) Romans 2, verse 4. Here, Paul explained the depravity of man and their universal need for salvation says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and the tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Look at 2 Timothy 2.25. This is Paul at the end of his life. The last thing he wrote before dying, being martyred. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, Paul is talking to Timothy about dealing with those who oppose his ministry and how he is to be patient with them when wrong. Verse 25, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Why isn't repentance a work? The same reason why saving faith is not a work. Because it is a gift of God's grace. And if you don't have the gift, you don't turn around. And if you don't turn around, you fall off into hell's canyon. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will perish. Edwin Orr accurately explains repentance this way. Does repentant believe the gospel imply that the sinner must do two things to be saved and not one only? The exhortation is really only one requirement. The instruction, leave London and go to Los Angeles, sounds like a twofold request, but it is only one. It is impossible to go to Los Angeles unless you leave London. End quote. You see, when you say you need to repent, that is the negative part, the turning away from. Faith is the positive aspect. It grabs hold of. Faith is volitional. That means it involves your will, what you do. So when you say repent and believe, you're not saying two things. You're saying one thing because you cannot believe, have saving faith, which trusts if you don't turn from your sin. If you don't leave London. Jesus called Matthew a hardened, immoral sinner consumed with avarice and said, follow me. And Matthew repented. But know this, if you have never turned your back on your wicked thoughts, 
and your wicked life to follow Jesus. If you've never repented, you're not a Christian. You're headed for Hell's Canyon. And that's what the scripture teaches. The children's hymn has it right when it says repentance is to leave the sins we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing so no more. That's what repentance is. The second thing we see from the text is that you need to understand who needs to repent. And this is so obvious after what we've already said. Sinners need to repent. That's kind of basic. Look at verse 29. This is what amazing is. You can see Matthew's transformation. I mean, at one time he's stealing from people. He's this hardened public in your face sinner. The next moment, Matthew, Levi, gives a big reception for him that is Jesus in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. Now, again, you got to understand some culture here. You didn't eat with people like this. See, to eat a meal with somebody meant that you were accepting them as your friend. Now, I want you to know who in the world would eat with tax collectors. Who are the friends of tax collectors, other tax collectors and people who are so carnal and sinful that they don't care what other people think. Prostitutes, drunkards, sinners, you know. And so here Jesus is invited to Matthew's house, and there is a whole crowd of these guys. All the guys who are around the whole area, extorting from the people, stealing, licensed to steal. They're bringing their prostitutes, these women that everybody knows are, are harlots, and these drunkards, these hoodlums, and they're having a big party with Jesus. And Jesus, get this, brings his disciples with them. And you could imagine, I mean, they're just in this movement, you know, they're just starting to follow Jesus. And Jesus goes, come on, Matthew, the tax collector. Yeah, you don't know how many times he's come to my house and he's taken half of my catch. Yeah, one time he came with guys with swords and he took three quarters of everything we caught. And one time I couldn't pay. And so he went and he took our only milk cow. He just took it by force. We're going to his house. Do you know what kind of people he hangs out with? Jesus goes, come on, guys. I want you to get to know these brothers. (laughs) Of course, no Jew would ever eat with a tax collector because they were ceremonially unclean and because they worked with Gentiles and so they were defiled. And so now you not only have a bunch of tax collectors, you have a whole bunch of other sinners, people who were so low, they didn't mind eating with people like that. And now Jesus is bringing his disciples in to eat with people like that. The Pharisees, though, are watching this from a distance. Of course, they aren't going into the house. They would never do that. So they wait until after, you know, and they come out all full from the feast. And they come up to the disciples. They don't come up to Jesus directly because they've already tried to outdo him. And he kind of burnt them with the paralytic deal. So now they're. So now they're going to go after his disciples. Look at verse 30. And the the Pharisees and their scribes begin grumbling. The word grumbling in the Greek is a great word, gangusmos. It's an automatopoeic word, 
and uh, you just have to know that. It doesn't really make any difference, but it's a neat word. Um, they began grumbling at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And I'm sure the disciples felt uncomfortable when they asked him this question, because what would the disciples say? I, we don't know why we're eating with them. You know, I mean, we just we're, we're new to this thing. We're just trying to follow him. And uh, we don't know why we're here. We don't know why we'd go there. He just said, sit down. And we've never remember what Peter said later on. And even in Acts, after the three years of following Jesus, since the beginning, I have never eaten anything unclean. So Peter probably just sat there with the rest of the disciples and didn't touch anything. They sat there during this big feast around all these guys who were ceremonially unclean and they didn't even know why Jesus had them there. They probably felt uncomfortable. And so the disciples are being mobbed by the Pharisees. Why did you do this? And they're probably going, I don't know. But Jesus comes to their rescue in verse 31 and answers and said to him, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. That is so brilliant, so simple, so profound and crystal clear people who are healthy don't go to a doctor and don't need healing no kidding and who do you suppose are the sick see that is the question just tax collectors just drunkards just prostitutes and social outcasts how about successful businessmen of burbank How about nice, sweet, submissive, humble housewives and moms? How about teenagers who get straight A's, you know, junior high honor roll students, uh, you know, grade school, you know, student of the years and sweet children and toddlers and infants in the nursery. What about them? What about you? This is the whole point. The Pharisees missed it. They were thinking, listen, these are sinners. We are not. We are righteous. They are wicked. And Jesus says, oh, well, then I guess you don't need a physician. But these people do. You know what the Bible says about all of us. There is not a single man on earth who continually does good and never sins. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. There is none righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's you and that's me. We're all sinners. James says if you keep the whole law and yet break one, you're guilty of all. So you are the drunkard, the prostitute, the tax collector, the social outcast. And you need to repent. I need to repent. That's Jesus's whole point. All of us are the kind of people that Jesus came to call to repentance because we're all sinners. Sinners. The third point is this. What to do about it once you realize you're a sinner. You need to hear Jesus's call and repent. Look at verse 32. Jesus then just speaks to them directly. He's no longer using a figure of speech. He says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And this is, this is incredible. Why did Jesus come to earth? Why did he come to earth? Well, notice it wasn't so people could ask him in their heart. It wasn't so people would pray a sinner's prayer. Notice it wasn't so people would raise their hand at a revival meeting or go forward at an altar call. Jesus's purpose was to call sinners to repentance and ah, it just happened to be John the Baptist's 
ministry philosophy too. If you weren't here when we preached in the first two sermons of Luke chapter 3, go back and listen to them. They're on the same thing. And guess what? We're getting more because it was the disciples' ministry problem too. To call sinners to repentance. And guess what? It's the churches responsible. If you're part of the church, that's your job. That's why we're here on earth to call sinners to repentance. And you know what? When God grants you repentance, you will demonstrate a desire to turn from your sin. You'll want to turn from your sin. Why? Because of God's grace working in you. You'll want to just pitch that old lifestyle and you want to follow Christ. You won't become instantly perfect, but the direction of your life, you will persistently pursue righteousness, though you may fall along the way. Turn to Acts 17. Acts 17. Paul is speaking here to a bunch of well-educated Greeks who are into logic and rhetoric and debating things. They see Paul as some sort of myopic seed picker. And they're kind of, no, who is this idle babbler? So Paul preaches hard to him. And what does he say at the end of his sermon? He's coming in for a landing here at the end of his sermon. He says this in verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance... God is now declaring or commanding or charging is what the word is to men that all people everywhere should repent. Then he gives the reason why, because he is fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man who is appointed heir, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Notice that God commands people to repent It's his call. You need to get this in mind. Because when I come before you and I tell you you need to repent, I'm just telling you what God tells me to tell you. And when you share with your neighbor or your coworker and you call them to repent in faith and place their faith in Jesus Christ, you're just speaking on God's behalf to them. God is the creator. He is the sovereign one. He is the Lord. And he's the one who gets to tell his creation what they have to do. And his call is everybody repent. Why? Because the judge is coming. You see, this is what you need to understand. You are going to do one of two things. You're either going to submit to the will of God or you're going to submit to the will of God. That sounds profound, isn't it? The difference is you're either going to submit to the will of God now. Here on this earth and humbly turn from your sin to follow Christ now. In which for all eternity, you will continue to follow God's will for your life in perfect happiness in heaven. Or you will choose not to follow him now. And continue to run towards hell's canyon. And then when you die, it will be his will to keep you there. That will be his will for your life for all eternity to suffer the consequences of not submitting to him here and now. And so what are you going to do? What have you done? Have you repented or not? Where is your life going? Don't give me this. I go to church and I call myself a Christian and, you know, I know what the Bible says. Well, I want to know what direction is your life going? I think some of you 
If you were honest with yourself, you'd say, well, I show up to church faithfully. I call myself a Christian. I pretend this one thing. But you know you're just running towards Hell's Canyon. You know it in your heart. You know it right now. Don't delude yourself any longer. Don't just think, well, I'm just a carnal Christian. I've just been sinning for 33 years. And I've never followed Jesus. That's not the grace of God working in your life. You become a new creature when Jesus calls you. Not perfect. Man, you start pursuing righteousness. You get hungry for the word. You get hungry to serve the saints. You get hungry to do God's will. But that's not you. You have no hunger. You're either seriously entangled in sin and you need to repent or you've never come to Christ and you need to repent. But either way, you need to repent. In 1862, Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon called Faith and Repentance Inseparable. He preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. His text was Mark 1.15, Repent ye and believe the gospel. And he ended his sermon with these words, and they will be my closing words to you this morning. Quote, I will be a swift witness against you to condemn you if you believe not this gospel. But if you repent and believe, then we shall praise that grace which turned our hearts and so gave us the repentance which led us, led our, which uh, led us to trust Christ and the faith which is the effectual gift of the Holy Spirit. What shall I say more unto you? Wherefore, wherefore will you reject this? If I have spoken to you of fables, of fiction, of dreams, then turn on your heel and reject my discourse. If I have spoken of my own name, who am I that you should care a whit for me? But if I have preached that which Christ preached, repent ye and believe the gospel. I charge you by the living God. I charge you by the world's redeemer. I charge you by the cross of Calvary and the blood which stained the dust at Golgotha. Obey this divine message and you shall have eternal life, but refuse it. And on your own heads, be your own blood forever and ever. End quote. Every one of us is going to walk out of here this morning having repented or not. That you know the truth. Repent and believe and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that Jesus was so crystal clear. We're thankful for the example of Matthew who, though he seemed to have the world in his hands, turned on it all to follow you. And Father, we know that you require that of every person. Father, if we are entangled in a lifestyle that is not pleasing to you, that is against your will and your way is revealed in your word, you expect us to turn from it completely and permanently. You require us to turn from our wicked way and our unrighteous thoughts. And Father, we could never do that on our own. It is only by your grace. It is only because of the Holy Spirit's work within us that any sinner can turn from their sin and follow you. And so, Father... We want to be faithful. We want to hear your call to repent and believe. And Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do his work in hearts here that haven't done that. And that some might come to repentance and faith. Their lives might be changed and they might be forgiven. And Father, just be freed up from their burden of sin to walk 
after you for the rest of their days. Father, we pray this because we know it's your will. Amen.